Hello everybody and welcome back to the Jack Throwful Show. We are back in the studio for episode 12. Lots to get into this week with plenty of action to catch up on all around the racing world. And a great interview coming up later with F1 photographer Jamie Price. Plenty going on around the racing world this week. So we've got the F1 livery launches. This week a lot of teams are kind of revealing their designs from the upcoming season. For some teams it's kind of just an opportunity to show off the new livery, attract some new sponsors and kind of show off the deals that have been made over the winter, change some of the logos around and, and really it's just a marketing tool. But for other teams and I think particularly Aston Martin so far, we've seen them really kind of commit to showing a lot of aspects of their new design, the new kind of suspension system that teams are employing this year. It's going to be really key to the running order next year in terms of which teams are going to be able to take advantage of the gaps and the kind of exploits in the regulations. Where those loopholes are going to be is going to be really critical. And who's finding them? You know, it's not always the teams with the biggest budget that are going to be able to do that. A big budget, having the best engineers, it gives you the best chance at doing that. But it's not unheard of for a customer team to really come in and, and take the challenge to the top in, in the regulation era. So Aston Martin, potentially one of the teams that could do that. On the other side of the spectrum to that sort of approach to revealing the new cars, we saw the Red Bull livery get released on what was effectively just the show car for the 2022 regulations that Formula One corporate had released a few months ago. So it's, you know, it, they approached the tasks kind of differently. I think especially for Red Bull when they were so tightly kind of embattled in this uh, fight with Mercedes last year, it became such an aspect of like secrecy and, and you know, who can have the best design on their car this week or the best little tweak. So that secrecy seems to be carrying over where they don't want their rivals to be able to pick off the best bits of their car in the livery release week when they could wait until even, you know, first practice or last practice in Bahrain to really show those upgrades off on their car. Why would you give it away so early? Why would you take the Aston Martin approach? Maybe it's for sponsors. Maybe it's to get the best fan attention at the time. You know, it's, it's a balance and, and each team has a different approach to it, but it's really exciting not only to see what the designers of the cars have been working on for so long, but the new livery, it's an opportunity for teams to rebrand and re-engage kind of new style for the year. It is very sort of commercialized and, and a bit of commodification of, you know, selling little model cars and new t-shirts and hats and stuff with the new colorway on, but it's just a part of the sport and we have to accept that. And there's an interesting way to go about it. I think we're seeing that this week, the way different teams are approaching that problem. Last week, we also had the race of champions take place that I'd spoke about in the last episode uh, an event, sort of an exhibition event that unites people from all across the racing world, F1 drivers, rally drivers. Really, really cool to see them racing together, even the esports drivers coming in and getting involved and even beating Sebastian Vettel a couple times, the esports drivers, really showing their skills and, and being a part of the conversation in the racing world. Really great to see. WRC Sweden also coming up. They've been testing in Sweden their proper snowmobile cars, you know, really flying through a uh, full throttle loose surface snow 2022 rally cars are going to be really exciting to see in full competition mode next weekend they've been testing there at the moment getting the cars really dialed in to complete the fastest rally of sweden so that's also going to be really exciting you know building from the monte carlo rally that we saw seeing how that running order is going to be carrying over because sebastian loeb who won that monte carlo rally also reinstated his skill on the snow at the uh, race of champions he won that exhibition event which is you know not as competitive or as serious but it's still a win and it's still competing against a lot of other drivers to take that title so that was pretty cool to see as well Loeb won't be competing in WRC Sweden but if one of the younger drivers potentially even Elfin Evans can take that crown at that event that would be really awesome to see upcoming this weekend we've got Formula E Mexico it's at the same track that uh, Formula One uses in Mexico the Autodromo Hermanos Rodriguez great track with a very fun sounding name 
but also a really, really cool event for Formula E, building off that double season opener in Saudi Arabia, whether they can take that on and double down and, and you know, create another really great event, whether Mercedes and Rocket Venturi are going to be the two teams at the top again, or whether another team's going to come in and, and take that challenge, we will wait and see. I think that's all from me this week in this little intro segment. I'll get on to the interview that we all want to hear with Jamie Price. Really, really great guy and really interesting to hear all about the world of motorsport photography across categories across the world. Jamie's got a ton of experience and I hope that shines through in our interview. We covered a lot of topics from how he got into it, his inspirations, working with different teams at different events and what really drives his passion. We also spoke a little bit conceptually about the power of still photography and the role that photographers play. Especially in the modern era of Formula One with so much marketing, the role of the photographer is particularly uh, powerful and particularly important and maybe even underrepresented. And I think you'll really value hearing Jamie's insight. So I'll let you get onto that interview, I'll let the intro music play, and I'll see you at the end to wrap it all up. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Jack Throwful Show. Welcome to this week's interview segment. We're joined by a very, very special guest this week, Mr. Jamie Price, professional motorsport photographer, photojournalist, travelled all around the world. So hopefully should be a really great interview today. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for having me. I think the best place to start would just be for you to explain a little bit about what your job is at the moment. Uh, we'll cover kind of how you got there later on in the interview, but just if you could explain what a work weekend looks like for you at a racetrack? Uh, my job, I have the best job on earth, most days anyway, but my job is basically to document car racing, motorcycle racing, whatever it is that I'm, I've been asked to go to and, uh, and experience it on behalf of the people that can't be there in person. So I'm working for teams, I'm working for manufacturers, drivers, sponsors, sometimes the series itself, uh, just telling the whole story from start to finish the beginning of the weekend, um, not just cars on the racetrack, but the people working on cars and just everything. It's kind of like, I've, I've used this analogy a lot recently, but it's kind of like being a wedding photographer, but with, with race cars. Um, so you're really just trying to cover the broad spectrum of what it's like to, to be at the races that weekend. And I'm very fortunate that I get to go all over the world, uh, so many different countries, you know, car racing is an amazing thing that it's pretty much run on every continent except for Antarctica at this point. So absolutely. Yeah. It's, and it's what, really one of the cool. things, one of the things you had mentioned is that um, it seems almost unique to racing that they, they encourage photography and they, they let all the fans up close at a racetrack. It's a sort of special feature we've got of being racing fans that that level of access, the access that you have is, is incredible, but also just the fans get to kind of share in that being up right close to the racetrack. How do you feel that that level of access enables you to kind of better tell the story? Well, it's that's how I and most of my colleagues got our start is just by going to the races as a fan with a camera. And we are so fortunate that for whatever reason, just the mentality in car racing is that they want the fans to be able to take that home. They want their, the fans to be able to share that. Um, you know, I can kind of see from from the other sports that don't allow that perspective. Like you can't allow, you know, 15, 20,000 people into a champions league, like, you know, stadium with 500, 600 millimeter lenses. There's just not that much room. Um, and you'd have people like banging into each other with, with lenses and gear. And 
it just creates a safety concern. But with racetracks, because they're so big, I guess that's it's just one of the reasons that they do encourage fans to just bring their cameras and and you can go. There's very few tracks or series that don't allow fan photography. Um, and so it's so much fun to walk around the races and talk to people that have cameras that just want to be there doing what I'm doing or don't even know, don't even want to do it professionally. They're just enjoying it as a, as a fan. And I've, some of the races that I've been to, you see equipment that is, you know, newer and more expensive than my own. And, (laughs) uh, you know, like when, when I've gone to Asia before you see cameras that aren't even on the market yet, uh, just being, held by by fans and it's super super cool it's a lot of fun to see that so we're very fortunate that in car racing they they encourage that versus you know golf or football or american football tennis uh basketball like all these sports you can't walk into an arena with with a camera and a lens that's really more than like a point and shoot or your phone um So you can bring your DSLR and a 600 millimeter lens to most of these tracks and, and they encourage it. And I think that that freedom that you spoke about sometimes while that is present in motorsport, it can also come around from the teams. You had spoke about an incident with Red Bull where you'd photograph, uh, photograph the rear of the car. Um, and maybe that information wasn't actually something they wanted in the public eye. But it felt very much in the spirit of the sport that you were saying, no, no, I'm here to take this picture and I'm going to put it out because it's my my freedom as that kind of storyteller to tell that full story. And while maybe the teams aren't always a fan of that in, in terms of their own benefit, that culture more widely in the sport of, of trying to tell every story and, and co- uncover every uh, turn over every stone, should we say. I, I really enjoy that. And I think that's also something I try and do with my show is, is get that extensive coverage and uh, you probably butt heads with some few people along the way, I assume, in, in your time. Yeah, I mean, so I actually had an interesting um, Twitter spaces that I did recently where the one of the Red Bull, um, he was a former Red Bull like chief engineer on the, one of the cars. He and I were invited to be on this Twitter spaces. And we actually had a really entertaining chat because I'm coming at it from the perspective of photographer covering an F1 race. And he's coming at it from, you know, an engineer trying to engineer the car, but also protect the secrets of the car. Um, and, you know, honestly, like my job is, is has very little to do with spy photography, trying to get those aerodynamic pieces of the cars that are secret that other drivers and teams want to know about. Um, I absolutely have been asked to do it, but it's it's a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of of what I'm doing on a weekend. And it was really interesting how he was like, well, we, well, we hate it that you guys do that. I'm like, well, yeah, but you're also employing people to do that yourself. So you can't be too mad about it that I'm taking a picture of the rear of your car. Um, And I only did that to make that, that particular story you're talking about. I only did that to make a point because we'd been removed from a spot that was really nice, just a a nice artistic spot. and they removed us because they assumed that we were all there taking pictures of the diffusers of the cars. And I was like, mm, no, I'm just here doing some pretty photos, but I can go somewhere else to take a picture of the diffuser of your car. So, you know. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that yeah. the teams, as, as much as they, the teams might resist that in the individual instance, we see, I, I think, especially with the Formula One season this year, they're perfectly ready to extend that to other teams they're competing against. Of, 
you know, trying to block their access to things or cover up their garage when they're working on the car, things like that. Yeah. So it's almost, you know, they're, they're doing it to protect their own interests. But what, what the fans want to see is uh, the real thing behind that. Yep. I think one thing I wanted to touch on was before you made your current career, your time uh, telling stories as a jockey, as a steeplechase racer, how um, could you ever imagine at, at that time that you would be where you are now photographing cars for a living? Did, did you feel that the rest of your life was going to be in horse racing at the time? What was your mindset back then as, as to what your future might be? Yeah, it was kind of a dream. I honestly remember going to to a race uh, pretty much. It was maybe a couple weeks after I had I had been given my first DSLR camera for my 21st birthday. And I remember going to a race and and looking around at all the professional photographers and just thinking, like, you know, wouldn't it be cool? And I was just I was just at university at the time and I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I knew that horse racing I was very passionate about. I was pretty good as a jockey, um, but I, I didn't really know where I was going to be able to go with photography. And it wasn't actually until I moved to England for a short spell where I really felt like, you know, I want to give this a try. I want to do something where I can, I can, you know, try and tell stories that aren't just horse racing stories. I have my access in horse racing, but I want to be able to use my, my access there to like build my portfolio and be better. But, you know, I remember a couple of times where I was just thinking like, you know, I don't know how to make this happen, but I, I need to try and make it happen for myself. And I, I just, I, I remember vividly being in that kind of like dream chasing mode where it wasn't until, you know, I started getting a couple opportunities to go here and there. And, um, I snuck into, into Croft circuit up, up North, um, in Yorkshire, uh, and just convinced the security guy out there that I was there to take pictures for one of the teams that was racing on, on one weekend. And, you know, stuff like that. Like I just kind of did whatever I could to get into, into motorsport. And, um, yeah, it was, it was not something I really thought would be a full-time career until much later on, but I knew there was like, I, I kind of dabbled it in enough to know this is something I, I really love. Amazing. And tell me about photographing lawnmower racing. What was that like? Uh, lawnmower racing is honestly like the, it is the coolest sport you've ever seen. Um, it, it's really like very pure motorsports, grassroots, you know, passion for anything that's racing. And in North Carolina, I'm very lucky that it's not just in you know, North Carolina and my area, my hometown of Charlotte is known for NASCAR, um, Haas, Formula One teams you know, based here. They're not really based here, but they have a, they have a factory here that produces some of the parts for the car. Um, so it's, it's known for the, the bigger series, but you know, you can go to almost any small town you drive, you know, East or West, you can, you can pretty much find a dirt track in, in every single town. And it's what the, it's just what the local community does on a Friday or Saturday night during especially during the spring and summer and early fall it's just what everybody does it's like you know like going to the rodeo out west um and lawnmower racing is kind of almost the most pure version of that and it's it's just you know dads and brothers and sisters and wives that have taken a lawnmower stripped it down taken the the mower blades off of it uh 
juiced up the engine quite a bit, uh, put an exhaust on it, and they just throw a motocross helmet and goggle and a pair of like ski goggles on, and and they just rip around these tiny quarter mile, not even quarter mile racetracks. Like they're they're really 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 small, and it's just it's very very interesting to watch because there is a a a governing body to it but it's basically just a facebook page with a hundred people that <laughs> kind of um that kind of participate on it and there are rules and things there's they have to go through like a version of tech scrutineering but it's it's really just very entertaining and to photograph it you know that was very early in my career and i i had asked the newspaper that i was interning for i was like listen i think i found something kind of cool that might make a cool story you know i want to go see if I can make something out of it. And the newspaper editor was like, yeah, sure. See what you get. Go have fun. So I ended up covering a couple weekends worth of lawnmower racing. And it was, uh, it was amazing. It was just a lot of fun. It was very low key. There wasn't um, a lot of the political red tape you'd get with professional racing series. You can't go here. You can't do this. You can't take pictures of that. You know, you need to have a a selected interview time for Lando Norris or Daniel Ricardo. You know, it was just the drivers just walking around and working on their on their lawnmowers. Um, and then when they actually go racing, they're running around on two or three wheels, but just cornering so hard that the thing's nearly ready to, to flip over. And it was a lot of fun to shoot. And it's something I very much want to go back and, and redo now that I have more experience and uh, can kind of use the things that I've I've learned throughout my career to go cover it again. I really want to figure out how to do that. Awesome, awesome. And then, so th those sort of small scale, more sort of like personal moments that you get in grassroots motorsport, capturing those, is that something that you are able to feel even in a high stakes professional event, maybe like a Monaco or a Macau or something where there's so much more of that sort of political element and, and that, budget really there and so many eyes on that event do you find uh in your job now the similar opportunities to capture those sort of small personal moments it's 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 much harder uh you know that's why my recommendation for people that want to get into motorsport photography or do what i'm doing is to start at the smallest stuff you can possibly manage to find because the access is just better um so when you get to a bigger event like Indy 500 or Monaco or, you know, any of the F1 races, any of the big IMSA WeatherTech races, Le Mans, um, you know, Sebring 12 hours, you know, the World Endurance Championship, all those events, you know, when you when you multiply the the money and you multiply the sponsorship and you multiply the fan base and and, you know, the time commitments on the drivers, it just makes it much harder to get those moments, to find those those details and have access to those those moments and those details, you know, you're not going to be able to just walk into the Mercedes garage, into the back of the Mercedes garage, and you know, find Lewis Hamilton like, you know, snacking on a sandwich or just chilling, sitting on his phone in the back of the garage. You're never going to be able to do that, and you can do that at the smaller stuff, and you can make something out of those moments. Um, so when when those other it's like a learning it's like my internship you you start at the small stuff and you figure out what works and what doesn't and how to do it and how to approach it and then when you do get to the bigger events when something does 
you know, present itself as an opportunity, which is going to be fleeting at best and very rare. But when it does present itself, you know how to attack it and how to approach it without being a nuisance or in the way. Um, and it's all that experience comes from the smaller stuff. Brilliant. So starting on that small scale, did you feel quite early on that you were able to develop a style with your photography? Was was there a sort of fluency with the equipment that you developed quite quickly and you felt confident of, you know, here's my portfolio with my style in it? Or was it just experiments really and trial and error? It was experiments, but it's style is something you just build slowly over time. It's not necessarily something that you get just by doing it once and then you have a style, it's, I still feel like I'm developing my style. I recently went back through some of my images um, because we, you know, as part of my work with Lamborghini, we just had last, last year in August, we had our 100th North America Super Trofeo race, which is the single make series for Lamborghini. And I was asked to go back through my pictures going back to 2013 and uh, I, I honestly hated going back through my pictures all the way back to the beginning of my professional career because I very quickly realized that I, I wasn't very good and I also didn't shoot enough. Um, so, you know, being able to be very self-aware and, and very hypercritical of yourself is really important to developing that style. Like, it's never good enough. You can ask my wife or my friends. I'm still not happy with my pictures. I still came out of the Daytona 24 hour last weekend, not happy with how I had covered it. Um, and I'm sure if you asked my clients or anybody else, they'd say the pictures were brilliant as always. But when I look at it myself, it's just not good enough. So it's it, a style is something you're constantly developing. Um, and it, it just, I don't know that I'll ever have a, a style that's truly my own because it's always gonna be changing until the day I retire. How do you, it, it, with that then, with that sort of constantly developing fluid style, how do you learn and, and collaborate with the people around you? You have such a cool job. It feels almost that the, the people around you, the other photographers that are doing similar things throughout the weekend, are you, do you get a sense of competition with them or is it a much more mutual collaboration that you feel? Competition isn't necessarily the right word. It's, um, it, it's it's very healthy like we all push each other to be to be better to find something more interesting um it is frustrating when people just straight up copy you like there's pictures that i've seen where i took a photo or a, a sequence and then i see somebody else just did the exact same thing on on instagram and posted it like a month later at the same track the same corner the same time of day similar car um you know there's no originality in that but, you know, between the professional photographers that are out there, I really feel like the, the healthy competition between all of us really pushes us to, to evolve our style and evolve what we're doing. Um, use light differently, use foreground elements differently, shoot slower shutter speeds, do just, just constantly changing. And it's a lot of fun. Uh, I don't feel jealousy toward anyone i i honestly like the people that i'm at the track with every weekend we're all a lot of us are very good friends um you know we see each other every week or every other week during the year and you're you know away from home you spend a lot of time with each other so when i see them posting something or one of their clients posts something i'm like man that's a really nice photo 
you know, I don't want to go copy it, but I can put my own spin on it to the point where it's mine and not just a, a straight copy of what they did. Like I've seen other people do on with some of my work or other people's work. And are there, when you were first developing photography and, and becoming, l learning how much of a passion it was for you, I suppose, are there any particular photographers that stood out to you in, in your memory of thinking, oh, wow, that's, I've never seen someone do something like that before, or I wish I, you know, that's a, sort of an aspiration to reach that level of quality. Any examples of that? Yeah. So like when I was first starting, I would look at, at issues of F1 Racing Magazine, which is a, a Haymarket publication. Um, and in each magazine, they had a kind of a double page feature about, you know, a picture from a recent race with all the camera settings in it. And I would look at these pictures um, from, from Mark Thompson, uh, Darren Heath, Vladimir Reese, James Moy, you know, Laurent Charnier. Uh, there's so many photographers that are covering Formula One, which was the sport that I was mainly following at the time. Uh, and to see the work that they had had created made me, it, it honestly made me fall in love with photography of car racing because it's not just photography it's how you tell the stories of car racing and how you can tell those stories using shutter speed and color and light um, portraiture you know candid portraiture it's not just like you know guy on a white background you know kind of a boring portrait like you want to capture them in their environment that's not even necessarily in the race car and so when i was looking at these pictures that's what really made me say to myself like wow it's not just it's not just a car on a racetrack there's more to it than that and looking at their pictures that they created and and some of them a lot of them are very good friends of mine now these photographers that i looked up to when i was younger and starting my career those photographers really helped me fall in love with the sport not just photography but the sport itself and then when i figured out how i could kind of merge the two myself um, it's been very humbling to have people kind of feel the same way about me toward photography and and the sport of motorsport, not just not just Formula One, not just IMSA WeatherTech or sports car racing, but you know motorsport that they can see that it's a beautiful thing, which is exactly how I felt when I was looking at their pictures. And how do you feel that the use of social media and, and sort of your Twitter and your Instagram enables you to, like you said, for people to view you now as as that guy who is having that dream job and, and creating really beautiful artwork how do you feel that your sort of more direct engagement with fans of your work has uh, enabled you to kind of build and, and grow that relationship i mean social media has been for photographers in general it's been the best thing ever um you know you don't have to have a website and a portfolio now i mean obviously it still helps to have something that's yours and yours alone um but Instagram is the new portfolio and, and being able to share those images is also, you know, hugely beneficial because it just, it just gives you so much more reach, like to say to somebody, you know, even 20 or 30 years ago that you can put a picture on the internet and it'll be on your own page. That'll then get seen by hundreds of thousands of people every year is something I don't think they could probably believe that that would be the case and it's been a huge benefit for all of us in the arts community but it also has its own downsides too where it really um i don't i don't want to say like puts pressure on you but it it does put pressure on you to constantly keep innovating constantly keep 
putting out something new and it's not just you can't just let it sit for a month or two and then you know let's it be somebody else's problem like it was in the magazine days where you submit your work it goes in the magazine you don't necessarily choose what pictures go in the magazine now it's like you have to put your own pictures up and you better make sure that it's the best of the best that you can produce and there is a there is a pressure to that that i i struggle with i think everybody struggles with um if you have a public facing social media presence it's not always easy but it does allow you to to share your own work that you choose to share without having to have somebody else be the middleman and is that quite important to you to be able to obviously you're fully engaging in your own creative process when you go and work at a race weekend but also to have that editorial control of these are my favorite photos and I get to tell you what my favorite photos are. It's not a, a brand saying, oh, we can, you know, see the Lamborghini logo perfectly here. Right. That's our shot. It, is it having that process of, of, no, I'm telling my own story with pictures that I like the best, I'm most proud of. Is that what yeah. really, that's the benefit of it? Totally. And the, a lot of the pictures that I put on my Instagram aren't necessarily pictures that I took for a client. Um, and, and it does kind of, it doesn't get tricky, but it can, it can kind of like leave a conflicted feeling where I'll, you know, last night I put up a picture of a Porsche that I took on the Daytona banking and there's Christmas lights that I shot through. Um, and it was pretty late at night, but the car is not a client. Porsche is not a client. It wasn't, it just in no way, shape or form. Is it a client? I'm semi okay friends with one of the drivers of it. But uh, other than that, it has no relevance to anything that I'm being paid for but it was the best of the pictures that I got from that spot. And, you know, you kind of feel a little bit conflicted about that, but at the same time, it is my portfolio. It is what I choose to share. That's the best of my work from a race or a weekend. And I, I don't need anybody's permission or like you said, you know, the Lamborghini logo is perfectly sharp on the, on the pole winning car from, you know, XYZ race. It, it can be whatever I want to share from whatever race I want it to be. And what are some of the patterns you've noticed in being able to directly engage with fans on Instagram and stuff? Are there maybe things that um, will get more engagement and attention on Instagram that maybe you haven't, you, that surprised you? you? thought, oh, wow, people really like that. Maybe I should do that more. Are there any examples of that that stand out? Um, yes, but not in necessarily a good way. Like some of the most boring pictures I've ever taken, you know, it's just a picture of a car on a racetrack. It took nothing special to do. It took almost no skill to to make it. It's just kind of sitting in the right place at the right time. Um, those pictures do really well. And people think, you know, say that you're the best thing since sliced bread with a camera. And, you know, internally, I'm thinking to myself, I don't really even like this picture. I just kind of like the car or the moment was... Um, the car was the one that won the race, but it's not even the most special picture I have of the car. I just, for whatever reason at the moment, that was like, I'm just going to post this one and it goes super viral. Um, you know, same with stuff on, on TikTok. You, you're like, I don't even understand why this went super viral. Cause I'm not even that proud of it. But then the stuff that you are really proud of that took, a, you know, all the skills that I have in my toolbox, everything I've ever learned to that point it took to make that picture and then you know people are like Meh, it's okay <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's really frustrating uh you're like you don't understand how hard this was to do this like and nobody there it just kind of falls flat so it can be frustrating 
Absolutely. And do you think that covering um, so many different categories of motorsport, whether it be from lawnmowers to bikes flying around Macau to the Monaco Grand Prix, having that sort of such a, a diverse experience in, in all those different motorsport categories, does that inform you to know what to look for in every race? You're not only thinking about the category you're at that weekend, but you're taking a bit of knowledge from this race and a bit of knowledge from this race. How do you, is, is that just a, a subconscious sort of automatic thing where you, you feel like you know what's good or, or are you remembering direct lessons? It's subconscious, but there's also a huge element where um, covering covering an entire season of something and nothing else, it does lead you to like, creative ruts where you're only seeing the same people the same cars you know similar tracks um it you know i feel if i was only doing one category it would be very easy to fall into just taking the same pictures every weekend um and i know people that that have that problem because they cover nascar which is 36 weekends a year they cover IndyCar, which is, you know, 19, 18 weekends a year or something like that. Uh, Formula One, which will be 23 weekends a year. It's it's hard to get a different shot of Lewis Hamilton or Sebastian Vettel every single weekend because F1 purposely makes the, the paddocks and the tracks and the media pens look very similar to each other. So you have to find, you have to try really hard to get something different. And when you come at a series, like I don't, I cover a couple, a handful of F1 races a year, a handful of IndyCar races, you know, a handful of world endurance championship races and most of the IMSA WeatherTech season. And when I can come at one of those series that I don't spend a ton of time in, you can come at it more creatively and you can see, you know, yourself trying to do something different than the other people are doing just because you don't know any better. Um, you know, you're just, you just see something differently because I, I don't do it every weekend. I see a lot of the really boring pictures that I take of like, there was one particular picture I took, um, in Austin last year where the Ferrari logo outside their hospitality was lit up in the morning sun. And it was just perfectly like perfectly lit on the prancing horse, nothing else. It was just a really nice shot of the, of the Ferrari logo and I know most of my colleagues probably would have walked past that picture because they've gotten it, you know, a hundred times that year. Like they might all do it at the first race of the year, but then after that, you're like, all right, I've got this picture. I don't need to do it again. I don't need to do the same pictures week in and week out. And I come in and take a fairly boring picture. And I've seen it used even as recently as yesterday, a picture that I took in, in October. So, you know, having that ability to, come at something with fresh eyes is really beneficial and i love the variety of motorsports that i get to cover that it's not just one category um you know being able to do a little bit of nascar indycar formula one world endurance championship weather tech uh macau when it presents itself just random stuff just is is variety is the spice of life is really um how i look at motorsport it's all good absolutely so in terms of specifically then the upcoming Daytona 500, that being a new event for you, how do you see that, what everything you just spoke about is you know, going to be applied directly soon coming up? So is that something you, you've actively thought about in you, maybe you're not going to go where every other photographer is, or you're going to try and apply your skill set in, in a new way, in a new environment? How are you approaching that directly? Yeah, I'm, I'm really, really, really excited to, to cover my first Daytona 500. Um, 
I've been to Daytona so many times. I don't even know how many times, but I've never been for a NASCAR event there. And it's very different than what we're allowed to do for like the Daytona 24 hour. Um, yes, they use the same, like most of the same oval, like they complete all the a hundred yards of the oval essentially, um, for the 24 hour. But then when you, when you put 40 stock cars going around the oval, it's very different. And there's only, you know, technically four corners is what, how NASCAR categorizes, um, their turns. So your options are much more limited, but I can also take what I've used and learned from covering the the Daytona 24 hour and certain times of year and sunlight, you know, shutter speeds, panning, just coming at it with fresh eyes and also not knowing the personalities as well helps a lot too. Like, I don't know. I mean, obviously I'm a, enough of a fan to know who the bigger names are, but it's, it's a lot of fun to go to an event and not know, you know, who is the best car, who is the best driver. Like I, they're all kind of the same to me. And, and, you know, I know more about NASCAR than I do about, you know, other sports. Like if I went to a British touring car championship race, I would cover it. Like everybody is the same level of importance, even though I know some person might win probably more likely than the others, but it's a lot of fun to go into something with completely fresh eyes, uh, and, and have fun with it. It's, I, sh I haven't really talked to my employer about a photography brief, but you know, what we've talked about in the past is that I'll just be given free reign to go cover the event as I see the event, which is really what he wants. Cause he, I'm like the third guy on a team and I can just kind of go and, and have fun and add to their, their client portfolio for the weekend with, with stuff that's just for fun. And that's really where it's, it just makes it, it makes it just really enjoyable to go to a race and just have fun with it. And I think that's really brilliant as well for new fans that are entering that environment where I feel like, especially personally for me, trying to cover a bunch of different motorsport categories, it can be very intimidating when you're approaching a series that you don't know a lot about, but you'll think you're looking at it and like, well, 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 these people, they know a lot about it. So I, you want to be careful not to get something wrong or to not have something in proper context. And I feel, well, I feel like a lot of people did that with Abu Dhabi, maybe people that didn't follow the whole Formula <laughs> One season, but more, more just my own note in that. But I, what, what I mean is to, to be able to share in taking that new experience and that connection with someone who might be looking at you know you as a photographer who's going there for the first time and then someone who's watching it for the first time you get to share in that learning which i think is is really cool do you think that um that sense of novelty fades a little bit you, you spoke in an article or wrote in an article that you'd written for wtf1 about the triple crown of motorsport and you said you've become jaded with certain events throughout the years working seeing maybe things that not everyone sees can sort of dull down that fire a little bit, that passion for racing. Is that a more thing that's something that's a specific examples that stand out that cause that or that jadedness happens over time, do you think? It just, I think it just happens over time. Um, if you spend enough time around anything, you just become used to it. Like it takes a lot for me to really, you know, see a supercar driving down the street and go, wow, uh, I, I still get that, but it takes a lot more for me to get there. Whereas, you know, if a Lamborghini or a Ferrari or a Porsche 911, you know, drives down the street and, you know, some, you know, kid that doesn't get to see that these cars as regularly as I do, 
you know, they have a very different perspective and sense of like, of awe to it. Whereas, you know, I'm at a racetrack and they have an entire Porsche Corral or a Ferrari Corral or a Lamborghini Corral where you can go at, at the racetrack and you drive by, you know, a parking lot with 40 Lamborghinis in it, 40 Ferraris, 40 Porsches. And you think to yourself like, Eh, it's just the Ferrari parking lot. I don't need to like, I don't really even have time or need to go wander around it um, because I've got something better to do or, or the race cars are more interesting to me. It takes a lot for me to really, just because of how long I've been doing this, it takes a lot for me to, to feel that sense of awe and I still get it regularly. It just takes more for me to get there. And I hate that it happens, but it's like a good example with Formula One. I've covered this will be my 10th year covering formula one. Um, and at this point, like when the Haas, you know, the Haas car comes around, I know they're not in contention for a win. I know they're barely, if at all in contention for points. Um, <clears throat> and it's frustrating because the Haas car will come by me and the light will be absolutely stunning. It'll be amazing. It'll be everything I've, I've ever wished for. And I'm thinking to myself, I wish it was Lewis Hamilton on track right now, or I wish it was Max Verstappen. You know, you instead of seeing the picture as a picture, you wish that it was a picture of somebody else because I know that it's not important that it's a Haas and that that car is going to finish 19th or 20th in the race, um, and that no one's going to care if I if I had gotten the same picture of Lewis Hamilton or Max Verstappen or Sebastian Vettel or whoever it is, the just the engagement on social media or just the the impressiveness of the picture is just multiplied just because of who it is and that's frustrating that i know i'm aware of that so it's nice like i said when i go to an event like a nascar race or a macau grand prix where i don't know anybody like any of these kids in the f3 race in macau could become a future formula one champion if they've got the money and they've got the talent they they can become a formula one champion but i treat you know they're they're 14 15 16 years old they're all the same to me so you can shoot it all with the same like lack of knowledge um and all the pictures are just as important as the next and is there something special about those sort of legendary street tracks that environment it puts you in where you you're in the middle of a kind of bustling amazing city that people probably already would go and take photos of monaco just the bay and the harbor and you have this amazing event going on inside of that and so many stories on the racetrack with that incredible backdrop do the city races stand out as particularly exciting to photograph or is it just a, a different challenge? It's a different challenge, but there is something to be said about the proximity that you get to race cars. Like it, 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 there's like an adrenaline rush to it. It's really something that I kind of long for when I was, when I was riding race horses, that was the adrenaline fix that I, I really had a hard time replacing that when I retired from riding horses. Um, there's i still haven't found anything that quite gets you that that buzz that i had but the closest i've come is covering street circuits like long beach like macau like monaco um you know when you have a race car that weighs a couple thousand pounds and it's coming at you at 115 120 miles an hour and you can feel you know the the car like kind of kick the wall as it comes out of a corner or it's literally, you know, a few centimeters, inches away from you and your camera. There is, there's absolutely something really special about that, not just for us, but for the drivers as well, because there's no 
there is just no room for error. You go to a place like Circuit of the Americas or Shanghai or Malaysia or you know one of the bigger F1 tracks that are just physically big, not just like it's a big event, big venue. It's just a physically big place to work. When you compare that to the the adrenaline you get from a car that's like next to you while it's racing, is really really cool. It's a lot of fun. And you had mentioned one thing that stood out to me when I was researching for this was that Silverstone, not that interesting of a place to shoot, not that exciting, but a bit boring, a bit flat, just an airfield, nothing going on. Silverstone, huh? Yeah, it, there's a couple tracks like that. Um, even even Sebring, which is also another airfield, it's a all it's a former World War II bomber base in Florida that they run the 12 hours of Sebring and. Both of those tracks, and it's something to be said for how special it is when you when you add 150,000 spectators and the color and the energy that fans bring to an event. Uh, Sebring is one of the most boring places you can ever shoot without fans there. Um, I imagine Silverstone would be probably even worse because of, you know, sometimes the very gray English weather. Absolutely. But when you add when you add 150,000 fans that are all there like no one's there because they have to be there like no one's there because they're being made to be there everybody's there because they want to be there and they want to be part of that that action and they want to be part of that atmosphere it it changes a circuit like so drastically um some circuits can if you took all the fans away some circuits would still be just as cool as they are with 150,000 fans but other places like Silverstone and Sebring um those two particularly just come to mind because they don't have that much interesting about them as a circuit but then you put all the fans in the background and you know sebring is cool because they build all these scaffolding towers uh for fans to watch from and they come in the week the week before and basically build like you know three three meter tall uh (laughs) scaffolding towers and put somehow get a leather couch to the top of it where it's 15 feet above the ground and and you're thinking to yourself how did you get a leather couch 15 feet above the (laughs) ground without a crane and it's on this wobbly like painting scaffolding tower and they've strung christmas lights and then you throw the racing action in there it just it becomes a totally different event um and see and and silverstone would be very much the same when you have you know lewis hamilton flags and mclaren jerseys and you know, everybody just wanting to be part of the energy. It just changes the atmosphere of a of a pretty boring circuit pretty immensely. And I'd love to touch on uh, just uh, as you had mentioned there, the idea of people being fans in, in the UK. It just seems tied to the history of Formula One. But as someone who's lived in America and England, do you feel a resurging passion for Formula One over the last couple of years in America? It seems to me just objectively, the viewer numbers have gone up, more people are kind of buying merch and engaging on social media. But is there a, a passion that you can sense in the people you talk to? Austin was, was when I went for the Formula One race this past October, it was like nothing I'd ever felt in all the F1 races I've, I've ever been to. Um, I think it was probably one of the highest attended F1 races ever, maybe, definitely in the United States. And that that isn't just something that, you know, came out of nowhere. It's been a slow burn, but I think the Netflix series has helped immensely, um, putting it in front of people that don't 
honestly have any idea about Formula One or car racing, but to see that it's growing so fast is really good for the sport, but also really good for America. Um, you know, more than likely, we'll probably have at least two or three Grand Prix in in America in the next three to five years. We obviously will have Miami and Austin in this in this coming year's Grand in this coming year's championship. And it's probably deservedly like there. I mean, you have when you kind of boil it down, you know, Europe is more or less the size, the same size as America. And I think Europe has like 11 or 12 Grand Prix. And yes, they're each in different countries, but in the same landmass size. And, you know, there's going to be people that say, well, America is only one country, but you could realistically cut America up into four or five different countries with four or five unique cultures. Um, and it would still, they would still stand on its, on its own. So to have that energy and that passion for formula one, not just coming back, but I feel like it's a new, it's a younger crowd. It's a more diverse crowd, uh, age wise, as, as well as, you know, ethnic backgrounds, which is really cool to see, you know, just walking around the, the Austin fan areas. I saw people that traditionally would not have been at a formula one race, just, just for whatever reason. It's, it's always been a, a rich old white man's club kind of thing, um, to be perfectly honest. And now you see like so many women, you know, enjoying it and just like the, the Latin fans, the Mexican fans that are there cheering for, for Checo. It was just so, it was so cool to see. And it made me really proud to be an American, to be an American Formula One fan for as long as I've been, because I've been trying to sing the gospel of Formula One to anybody that'll listen for as long as I can remember going back to when I was 12 years old, but it was hard to get people's interest in it because they didn't know how to watch it. And now they see it on Netflix. They can understand it. People that I know have never had any interest in car racing come up to me and they're like, Oh my gosh, did you see the latest season of formula one on Netflix? And did you what, did you go to this race? Like, were you there when that happened? And it's really cool to see that. It's really cool to have that energy. And you're a part of that story as well with with the role that you play now. I think pe people really benefit from from the creativity and the insight that you're able to capture. Do you think there's, um, I suppose, my question is, what is it about a still image that is most powerful to you in, in telling a story that enables you to say what you want to say about a race in, in a, a still frame? Well, it's and it's it's something I've said recently, but I've always believed in it. It, and the, the saying that I've kind of made up is, did a race even happen if there's no photographs of it? Like, you know, if you, because social media is such a powerful part of not just our world, but a sports personality now and a team's personality, their presence, if they don't have pictures to share of, of their weekend or, or from Formula One, um, you know, if you go to F1's Instagram page, like, and you start scrolling, yes, there's videos, but it's like 80% photos to 20% videos. And it's, it would be the same on any team or any driver. If you don't have those pictures to share, you don't have those, those moments in a still photograph and it's just broadcast footage. A, it's not that interesting if you're just sharing broadcast footage. Okay. Yeah. It reached, it reached, you know, a hundred million people, um, in the broadcast, but I think if you cumulatively combined all of the engagement that you get from the photographers on a weekend, it far, far, far exceeds that hundred million um, views and engagement. So it is a really like photographers do play a really important part of 
the social media and the storytelling of a race or a, an event or a series. But I think it's easily forgotten when people are like, oh, it's just a picture. Like, you know, it's not just a picture. Somebody had to walk to that corner or set up to wait for Lewis Hamilton or Max Verstappen to walk into that beam of light and that you like just screen grab it off of Twitter or Instagram and make it your your wallpaper on your computer, or your iPhone. And they're like, oh, best picture of Lewis Hamilton ever. I love you, Lewis. It's like, well, somebody made that picture. They didn't just, Lewis didn't take it himself. I promise you that. I don't even know that he's ever held a camera. And secondly, it, it was created by somebody that had to purposely think about it for you to then go and then, you know, praise Lewis Hamilton. But somebody else is the creative genius behind that picture of Lewis. And was that that passion for the power of still imagery and the, the craft of photography, was that what drove you to collaborate with Drew Gibson in your workshop series and, and share that information, that spirit of, of opening up the industry? Could you speak a little bit about that? Partially, um, Drew and I started our workshop series, Paddock Focus, uh, just because we both get so many questions from, from fans, from other photographers, from people that are interested in, in our industry, you know, we get bombarded in a good way with, with how did you, how do you do what you do? How did you get to where you are? Um, how do I find clients? How do I get credentials to races? And it's never really been a secret. Uh, it's just been something that not everybody talked about, I guess, for one reason or another. Um, and we wanted to be able to, to, and honestly, like selfishly monetize how, how many of these types of questions we get because we can give our insight we can give our experience to those people that are really truly interested in in wanting to learn it because anybody can go to a race and enjoy the experience of photographing a race you don't need credentials to do that so we want to be able to share our experience that we've learned through our careers which is cumulatively between the two it's probably like 25 or 30 years of of photography and covering racing between the two of us um, to be able to share, you know, what we love about the sport, but also the things we've learned the hard way. And, you know, because when we both started, there wasn't such a thing as social media. Um, when I first started, it was really the very, 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 very infancy of social media. And he was, he predates that. So he was all the way back into like just magazines and newspapers and teamwork. And now it's a lot of our work is just being pushed to social media. So being able to help people understand how, how the industry works, um, answer those questions that, that people weren't answering previously is, has been really rewarding for both of us. That's really interesting that your kind of, your, your openness to share that I think is really gonna help that next generation of guys that are, are maybe picking up a camera for their first time just now, or they're, they're young Formula One fans and that they, to reinstate that passion for still imagery as a, a means beyond the broadcast, beyond the Netflix show of telling the story of, of a race weekend. I think it's really powerful that um, that spirit is there. Not only, you know, the drivers are always talking about fostering young race drivers and getting more people into the sport that way, but the attitude of, of getting more people into that journalism side of it, I think is is really powerful and um, a great project. Would highly recommend anyone to, to check that out if you're looking for more more detail on, on some of Jamie's insight there. Really brilliant stuff. Well, thanks. I think, Appreciate it. Absolutely. I think one last thing I wanted to touch on was uh, Le Mans, 24-hour race, the most legendary race in the world, 
something that you have spoke about as being the standout single event that drives your passion that none of that sort of jadedness that you've spoken about earlier it's Le Mans is, is still the one what, what's a Le Mans weekend like from your eyes it is brutal I've honestly I've honestly never worked a Le Mans uh without having a top tier team as a client which is a great problem to have it's not at all me complaining about that uh it is it is absolutely exhausting though um but since 2016 i've worked with toyota so you know on all of their lmp1 project uh since 2016 and then now moving into the hypercar era i've missed the last two so i, I missed 2020 and i missed 2021 lamar but you know, with Toyota, they have this very deep sense of um, all for one and one for all. And it's a very, it, the company obviously being Japanese is very, very team oriented, more so than any other teams that I've worked with uh, from Formula One to sports cars to whatever else. Like Toyota just has this atmosphere where everybody in the team matters. And that's great, but it also means we're all leaving at the hotel at the same time, even if you have nothing to do. The mechanics are having to be at the track at 7.30 or 8 in the morning, which means all the marketing team is also needing to be there at 7.30 or 8 in the morning. So it makes for probably if we, I mean, we normally start real work on Tuesday. Uh, so Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday are all like, 18 to 17 to 18 maybe 19 hour days and then on saturday and sunday you throw a 40 hour day um it is exhausting and the you know the shot list that, that we have to kind of check through and make sure that we get all these things for toyota um, for their social media use is is really extensive but you also know that there's kind of a an internal sense of pride that you're not just taking pictures that no one will see like you're taking pictures that hundreds of thousands millions of people will see they're they're you know the team that's going to be in contention for a win um so to be able to work around the drivers and the mechanics you know when I, especially when fernando alonso was in the car sebastian buemi mike conway kimui kobayashi like they've all become pretty good friends of mine just because of the time you spend around each other at le mans and um and then you you get to see those cars on this iconic racetrack that is almost a century old. I mean, they're I think this is their 93rd year, I guess. Um, so we're pushing toward 100 years of Le Mans, and that is really really cool and really special. You go out on the Mulsan at sunset or in the middle of the night, and you still I still get goosebumps. That's definitely one of those places that I'm not jaded by at all. You still you still absolutely when you hear those cars you can hear them from a, from miles off um you hear those cars coming towards you it is really really special and when you're working in that environment how do you how do you tell yourself you're you're finished i mean obviously it's at the end of the race but how do you feel you spoke earlier about not feeling satisfied not feeling like you covered the daytona 24 hour well enough is there anything that enables you to feel complete in your work when you're working at, at such a schedule that is foreign to most people that work a job how do you get a sense of, of fulfillment there isn't really there isn't really a guaranteed way to to know that you've you've done the best you could you really just have to take each hour 
uh, as its own separate race almost. Like each hour of the 24, you kind of treat it separately. So you you start with morning warm up in the morning, and then you go into the pre grid, um, and then the grid itself, and then you go into the race start. And each little section of the race, you kind of take it as its own separate event, and you try and do the best you can out of it. Planning helps a lot. So knowing when I'm going to go back to the media center and edit. Um, if we've got weather that is moving through the area, having to plan where you're going to be when it starts raining um, or when the sun, if the sun is out, you need to plan where you're going to be for sunset or sunrise. There's just a lot to it. And the best way to really kind of prepare yourself is to have a little bit of a plan. And obviously plans can, can get thrown out the window and you can kind of call an audible and, and change it but you still have to have in your mind like what your goal is, uh, where you want to be at a certain time of day, and then you work around that. Uh, but it is it is really hard, and especially as you get toward the end of the race, there is not a guarantee that you're going to love every hour of the race. So you, have to, you really have to be aware that it's not all going to be home runs. It's not all going to be portfolio winning images. You know, you kind of have to check the boxes that you're, your client wants you to check uh, for their purposes. And when you get to the end of it, you can only hope that the team has done well, <laughs> which they haven't always when I've been there. Uh, the team does well, but also that you you have enough energy to keep you know, going all the way through the podium and then into the editing part of the day where you're, you're finishing the final batch of images that you need to edit. But you have the energy and the mental capacity to, to stare at your computer and take what you took on track and did the best you could with with your camera and then you know pol just polish it not even not even heavily just a little bit of a polish on the editing platform um and then send it to to toyota for the world to see so it is there's a lot of pressure to it so you touched on there your approach to editing it is very small scale it's you know you're shooting raw so you have that ability to mess with the lighting and the color profiles in amazing detail now with the level of software that people have do you feel that um that that's kind of the attitude you've evolved towards editing is, is just little changes yeah that came from a lot of my time spent in newspaper editing um in newspaper photography where there's editorial guidelines you can't change that much for a picture in in a newspaper you don't want to it, it's it's ethically not possible you can't add or take away subjects from an, an image you can't manipulate an image to to lead the viewer into something that didn't happen um and i've tried to take that and a lot of us especially the older photographers that have been around a long time have tried to take that that mindset to you know if you don't like a background or you don't like a situation then move so I don't, I truly don't have time to spend even one minute editing a picture. If it's not something that I can edit in, you know, 15 or 20 seconds max, I'm going to trash it. Like I, there's just no point in me adding in a rainbow or a sun flare or a unicorn galloping across the racetrack. Like it has to be what I want it to be in the camera. Otherwise, it's too much work. It's too much time. I might be missing something out on track. There, there's just there's a lot to it that you really have to be thinking about when you're actually ho physically holding the camera trackside that I need it to be as good as possible right then and there.
That's a really, really brilliant insight there. Thank you for that. And I think just touch on what one final question. Um, in the upcoming year for you beyond the Daytona 500, what stands out at the moment in your calendar as, uh, as something that's going to capture that passion that you spoke about with Le Mans, that drive to, to do create your best artwork? What events are, are upcoming for you? Um, I'm, so I'll be at the Miami Grand Prix for the first time, which, you know, it'll be a first for all of us. Uh, it'll be a big event for Formula One. It'll be a big event for Miami. I, I'm really excited about that. That should be, you know, pro probably a highlight for the year. Um, I'm thinking that I'll hopefully be back in Macau in the end of the year. Hopefully that China will lift a lot of its restrictions, but we'll see how we get, uh, how it comes together a little bit closer to that. But honestly, like the, the Daytona 500, I'm very excited about. We have Super Sebring, which is a combined World Endurance Championship and IMSA WeatherTech events. So we have the eight-hour World Endurance Championship race on Friday, and then we have the 12-hour IMSA WeatherTech race on Saturday at Sebring in March. Um, you know, I've got Formula One testing in Barcelona between the, the 500 and Sebring. So I'll be I'll be kind of a little bit of everywhere, starting to get back to a lot of the more international travel that I've been doing the last several years until coronavirus really shut everything down. Absolutely. And that's the Barcelona testing that is not going to be publicly broadcast. So that's going to be a really interesting task to, to capture that in the upcoming Formula One season we have. I'm sure you're more aware than anyone as, as a fan and someone that works inside of it. Those attention on those cars is going to be very high stakes stuff i think yeah and it won't like i think people are really upset that it's not going to be televised but it wasn't televised until two or three years ago so it really yeah. won't be that different than it was up until i mean the last test i did was 2017 i think um and more recently i haven't been able to go to the testing so it wasn't that long ago that it was pretty much as it's going to be here uh, you'll still have a full gamut of journalists covering it, the full gamut of photographers covering it. So it's still going to be really important um, for pictures and and content from the teams and editorial outlets. But to be honest, like having ha being standing there trackside and watching, you know, Williams or a Haas just do laps for eight hours isn't that exciting. You sure. you get like brief stints of Lewis Hamilton doing you know five or six laps and then Max Verstappen doing five or six laps. But in general, F1 testing is not very exciting. It's great for photography, but it's not very exciting viewing. Sure. And so lastly, just as a fan, could I have one one prediction for the upcoming Formula One season? What what do you think is, is going to be upcoming? We had um, uh, Jonathan Wheatley a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, and he spoke about how he sees a, a resurging Ferrari, the Ferrari power unit coming up, their driver pairing coming together, and, and that team looking strong. Being clearly well, thirdly best. What what do you think is uh, is upcoming from your perspective? Even even looking backwards a little bit, I think we're really fortunate. You know, speaking as an F1 fan, because yes, I work in the industry. Yes, I work in motorsport. Yes, I cover Formula One. But I'm still at the heart of all that I am, just a Formula One fan with a camera. And I think we're all hugely fortunate to have an incredible championship that we were able to watch last year because as a fan that has been around for a long time, I've seen some really horrifically boring championships. So when you have a, a championship that goes down to the last lap of the last race, even though it's slightly controversial at the end, um, you know, seeing Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen banging wheels is a great thing for the sport. It's a great thing for us as fans. So 
honestly, like I don't, I, if Mercedes doesn't screw it up, I don't see how Lewis doesn't win this championship because he's going to come back swinging from after, from what, what happened in Abu Dhabi, but just generally like feeling motivated, feeling refreshed. I think he'll be a completely, you know, no, he's going to come out just ready to take on anyone and everything. But I think, you know, you have that, but you also have Max Verstappen who's maturing and growing and learning how to fight a championship um, and being a world champion. Now, I think the two of them together are just going to create epic battles. I think that's what we all want. We don't want somebody to just blow the competition out of the water. That's not very exciting. You want them to earn it. You want them to, to win it in, in ways that are just not boring for everybody to watch. And then you throw in, you know, kind of the, X factor, the question marks like Ferrari, uh, Alpine could be strong. Like you, we don't know. Maybe Haas will come out of the gate and have you know like a Braun type car where they've done something that nobody else was thinking of, uh, and they are suddenly like on the podium. I mean, it's unlikely, but it's entirely possible when you have rule changes this big, just like we had from 2008 to 2009. And uh, that's really exciting for me that you, you we have all these question marks now that it'll be great racing you have remotivated lewis you have a, a really motivated verstappen um great championship battles new tracks a long season unfortunately uh but i think i'm really excited i think it's a good thing for all of us so the message to all the the toxic people out there that just want one or the other just be thankful that you've got great great racing to watch absolutely that's a brilliant message there for everyone whatever fan allegiance you may have especially after Abu Dhabi it felt you know it was an amazing season but I think it was also a, a tough time to be I think you can speak as well someone who is, is so actively engaged in the social media side of F1 it was tough to be proud of the sport in that moment I thought it was like come on what, what are we doing here guys you know let's really you know it, it's a at its core it's still kind of a, a show and we need to have a little bit more of that respect so if, if that's something that can come back into the sport in, in 2022 I think that will be really amazing and I also wanted to touch on um the wild card of George Russell I think to me he's that big wild card of well he's not going to be like Valtteri Bottas I mean we saw when he subbed in uh in, when Lewis Hamilton had COVID in 2020 season he had no plan to be a second driver that weekend and now he has a full season with it with a new car How's he going to get his nose in? If or if if he underperforms, how's that going to be taken by the British media? You know, we, we uh, that that's really the wild card for me and something I'm excited to cover. He's he's definitely not going to roll over. And uh, Red Bull touched on it too as well, that saying that the better Verst the better that George Russell does, the better it will be for Verstappen's championships, you know, yeah. championship chances. And for anyone that doesn't understand that, like you have to understand, you don't want two drivers fighting for the championship you have to have a number one and a number two and the, the the more closely or evenly matched they are they just take points away from each other so you know whether whether Checo can up his game and and basically be the same kind of contention for Verstappen would be the only way that uh you get you know a more even playing field across four drivers or even six drivers if you then have Ferrari in there Absolutely. So it's going to be it's going to be fascinating to have George Russell, who's now very experienced um, in a slow car. I think he's probably learned a lot from that. Lewis has never had that kind of opportunity to to be at the back of the field. So it's going to be very interesting. 
Brilliant. Well, I look forward to covering it here on the show and seeing some of the amazing artwork that you're going to be able to capture throughout the forthcoming year. So I think we can wrap up the episode there. This has been a real treat for me. It's a brilliant, brilliant insight, and I hope everyone enjoyed listening to it. I'll uh, let Jamie take over now to promote anything he would like to promote. But uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Jack. I really appreciate it. You can see a lot of my pictures on any social media platform you wish, all at Jamie Price Photo. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for listening. And uh, that's the end of this week's interview segment. Well, how cool was that to get all that insider information on the inner workings of a Formula One paddock and really understand the man behind the camera who is delivering this amazing artwork every weekend and how are they doing it? I think it was really, really cool to hear that insight and a bit of self-reflection on how Jamie got to where he is in the sport and where he's going for the future, especially hearing about what he was excited for in the year upcoming, you know, balancing such a diverse calendar of racing series, whether it is bikes to indie cars to formula one cars to lawnmowers i think it's going to be really really brilliant to watch jamie's work throughout the year i'm a real fan of his photography and i think his style that he spoke about developing throughout the years it's been really great to watch that evolve even recently as this kind of stock goes up i mean he's like really one of the uh, top motorsport photographers in the world it's not inaccurate to say that i think it's been really really valuable for jamie to kind of engage in that social media aspect and as we spoke about the downsides of it tricky to lose yourself in that sometimes but the upside of it and being able to engage in that personal kind of relationship with your fans and share your artwork on your own terms I think it was really really brilliant that Jamie was able to speak about that and also Le Mans I mean how brilliant is Le Mans from an insider working a 24-hour race how do you approach that task I think it was really great to understand that as well and of course that love for the sport that passion for racing it shone through I think too in the Jonathan Wheatley interview But the passion for racing really never dies and that love for the sport and the engagement, the innovation, the passion that everyone in the paddock shares, whether you are building the car, you're driving the car, you're riding the bike, or you're photographing it, you're commentating it, you're delivering that kind of presentation, that artwork, that action to the fans in your own way and really doing it the best that you can do. Really, really inspirational, I think, and I hope anyone out there going to some motorsport this year, I really encourage you to try and bring a camera learn from what Jamie has said about capturing those personal moments and grassroots motorsport and see what you can do. I think really just try and have some fun with it and take on board those lessons. I know I will when I'm at Silverstone this year. Even if it is a little bit of a boring place to shoot, I'll try and find that opportunity for creativity and uh, push myself to make what I can make and, and do it the best and hopefully deliver it on the show, get some new pictures to use on the thumbnails. That would be pretty cool. I am running out of pictures to use on the thumbnails, so uh, it'd be you know good to get some new ones in this year take on Jamie's advice and hopefully improve my own quality a little bit of my kind of design and presentation I'll try and learn some of those lessons so I hope that shines through in the show too but that's all from me and Jamie this week it was really really great as I said to get that kind of insight I'll be back in the studio next week with another interview coming up with a journalist who's worked in Formula E and Formula 2 and she's a fellow Lancaster University student too so to get that insight from a journalist who's kind of working her way up in the sport and that young aspect of it finding that passion and working through the opportunities that are given to you when you're just starting. Really an alternative to Jamie, who has already made a very successful career and is kind of going from strength to strength as he looks to increase his uh, following and his stock in the sport. Our guest next week, I hope, will kind of show a little bit of a different aspect of it. And for people looking to get in, especially people like me, you know, looking to get in on that journalism side, how can you do that and how can you be successful at that? That's what we'll really be touching on next week. So I look forward to that episode. And I hope you'll join me next week with more of the Jack Throffle Show.